Our scripture reading this morning is from Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 through 9, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, through chapter 6, verse 1. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take the serpents away from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, Therefore, all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation." The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, good morning, church. Uh, thank you, Maria, for reading that. Um, I feel like Maria needs to be on a Bible app, like be like the reader on the Bible app. Are you? Oh, well, that joke didn't land quite as like I was expecting it to. Um, congratulations then, I suppose. <laughs> Wonderful. Check out Maria's Bible app then, everyone. Um, she can do that for you every day. Um, but yes, thank you for reading. Um, it's not the, not the start I was expecting. Um, I am thrilled to be here. Uh, like Nick was saying, my name is Travis. Um, we are three years removed from being members at um, East, or Village, formerly known as. And um, yeah, we've been in, in South the last three years. Um, we miss this place. Uh, we miss this church. There's 
some familiar faces here, uh, people that have been here when we were here, um, and a lot of new faces as well. And I think it's kind of a cool thing to, yeah, to kind of see, um, I don't know, I was thinking about, I was thinking about this week, I was talking to Lauren about it, I was like, it's kind of like this bittersweet thing, because it's like, it feels like it's our place, but frozen in time, in like three years removed, right? Um, but it's also encouraging to know that like, just to kind of look at what God's done, um, how, you know, East and South have kind of both grown, um, what God's doing in this city through his church here, um, specifically through Village, so that's really cool. Um, and yeah, like Nick was saying, I am uh, an elder candidate in South, um, perpetually, it seems, a little bit. Um, hopefully soon, we, uh, we'll wrap it up. COVID hasn't made things easy on anyone. Um, but yeah, just really excited to kind of be able to participate in what God's doing through Village in this city in that role, um, God willing. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of a bit, bit about me. Um, if Thank you for reading again. If you might be sitting here being like, what in the world does Numbers in 2 Corinthians have to do, or 2 Corinthians, um, have to do with one another? Um, we're gonna look at that today um, and uh, kind of explore that. Um, and I'm gonna spoiler alert it a little bit. Number one, there are no slides, if you're anticipating that. If you're a note taker, you're gonna have to pay attention. Um, number two, um, the, the big idea that we're gonna be exploring um, is kind of what Paul mentioned, and you probably heard it in the reading um, in Second Corinthians, of the idea of reconciliation and how we're reconciled to God and what that means for our lives today. Um, so there you go. I'm going to pray for us real quick, um, and then we're going to take a look at the story of Numbers, which is one of my favorites in the Old Testament, and we'll get into it. Um, Father God, thank you so much for today. Uh, thank you for um, your word that we can come under, listen to, um, hear from, receive, God, I thank you that it corrects us, that it encourages us, um, that it calls us to remember um, your goodness to us. Um, this morning, uh, Holy Spirit, as I'm kind of you know, teaching, I pray that you would give uh, me the right words to say, um, to communicate your word with humility and with sincerity and in truth. God, I pray um, in my own heart and in kind of all of our hearts here that we would have ears that would hear um, that our prayer would be the prayer of Samuel, that we, we would ask you to speak because we are eager to listen. Um, and so this morning, God, I pray as we come under your word and listen to it, that, that you would speak to our lives um, and that we would hear uh, what we need to hear from your word this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, Numbers 21, verse 4. It is one of my favorite kind of Old Testament passages for a few reasons. Number one, it's short. Um, and I do well with short stuff. Um, I married a short, a short person. It's, I have preferences. Um, secondly, I think it is a brilliant picture of the gospel. Um, it's simple. It's clear. Um, I love when you can look at the Old Testament and just clearly see Jesus. And so um, it's always been a personal favorite of mine. And so as we look at the idea of reconciliation, I think it's a great picture of the people of Israel, their relationship with God, and kind of what that means for us. And so I'm gonna read, read that for us real quick here again, because it is so short, um, and share kind of a couple things from that. So, verse four, uh, from Mount Hor, they set out by way to the Red Sea to go round the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. I'm gonna stop there real quick. Um, if you've read Exodus, Numbers, the Old Testament, if you've kind of like read about the nation of Israel from leaving, ex, uh, 
from leaving Egypt, their time kind of in the wilderness until they get to the promised land, these words that they say to God right here should sound pretty familiar because they complain about this to God all the time. Perpetually, in their experience, they are always wanting to go back to Egypt. They are hating their present circumstance. They're impatient with God. They're complaining. Um, and they just countlessly, just countless times, um, complain to God about their circumstance. They're not full of faith. They don't trust him. And I think sometimes when we read this story, I know when I do, I can just scoff at the Israelites and look at them and be like, what are they doing? Like, silly them. And part of that's because we know the story, right, and what God ultimately does and wants to do for them. Um, Part of that is we feel like we would maybe do something different, but the sin of the nation of Israel is our sin. Um, The complaining, the desire to go back to a life before Jesus, um, it, it, it sits in our hearts all the time, and, and their nature's our nature. And so when we read this, I want us to see ourselves as the Israelites. As we're gonna kind of go through the story of Numbers this morning, I, I'm gonna continually try to like encourage you to imagine yourself as an Israelite this morning. So they do this, they complain to God, they say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Which is a pretty bold accusation to accuse God of delivering you just to kill you in a different place. Um, it's, it, it's, I mean, when you actually read it, it's pretty, it's pretty wild to think about it that way. Um, they say, uh, they, they say the, the accusation is based on the fact that there is no food or water, but also in the same breath they say, and we loathe this worthless food, which is a funny complaint because you're accusing God of not giving you what you need, but then also saying, well, you have given me what I need, but I just don't like it. And so again, that's, that's us. We do that to God all the time. And as much as we think we don't, it's just the truth and the reality of who we are. So what does God do? God then sends fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people in Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So God's response is punishment and judgment. One of the fun, and I say that sarcastically, realities of scripture of who God is, is that God hates sin. He does not like it. He will not suffer it. He does not permit it. And he punishes it. And that's the thing that we're kind of like, about talking about sometimes in the church. Even as Christians, we just get uncomfortable with that idea. And the reason why is because we're sinful. Um, We have a sinful nature. We know that if that's the way God feels, then that's the way God feels toward our sin. It's an uncomfortable place to be. And God, throughout scripture, has always had this attitude towards sin. And so, here we find the Israelites, yeah, I mean, experiencing God's judgment towards their sin. And it's funny because, to contextualize this even further, this, like in the timeline of the Israelite nation, this is happening in the 39th year of their 40 years of wandering. So if you know the story, they basically leave Egypt, they're traveling around, they get the Ten Commandments, they're on the doorstep of the Promised Land. They send 12 spies in, they come back after 40 days, and all but two present this negative report. 
And they're like, look, it is everything God said it was, but there's no way we can take it. There's no way that we'll be able to take this land or conquer it or whatever. And they spread that message throughout the nation of Israel. And basically all of Israel believes that though God has promised this, it can't actually be done. God won't actually do it for us. And they'd say the same thing. You've brought us out of Egypt to kill us in the wilderness to die in this place instead of that one. It's the same accusation. And so they've been wandering for 40 years, again, as a judgment for their sin and faithlessness. And here we find them again, sinning the exact same way um, towards God and experiencing God's judgment towards that same sin again. And their initial response, as often is once they experience God's judgment, is confession. We have sinned against God and against you. They say to Moses, please pray for us. And so what does God do? Well, Moses prays for the people. In verse seven and in verse eight, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And that's the end of the story. Pretty simple. It's just a clear picture of the gospel. God makes a way, in spite of their sin, for them to be delivered, for them to experience the promised land. Someone explained to me the gospel kind of in four points once upon a time. It's really kind of a simple way for me to understand it. I think it might be helpful for us to kind of think it through that way this morning. Um, The first thing the Bible talks about when it talks about sort of God's plan and redemptive plan for us is that God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life. We see that in Genesis with with creation, with Adam and Eve, with what God had intended. And we see that with the nation of Israel, how God selects this people to be his people. How, how they are a fulfillment of his promise to Abraham, um, how he was faithful to deliver them from Egypt, how he, he was faithful to them all throughout their journey in the wilderness. And, and even now, he's faithful to forgive them in, 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 in the picture of their sin. He's given them the promised land. He wants them to take it. It's a place of prosperity. It's a place of milk and honey, which is just a biblical way of saying it. It's like just bountiful and prosperous and just like a glorious place to be. God, that's God's desire for them and for us. But man is sinful and separated from God, so we can't know him and we can't experience his love and his plan. And we see that with the nation of Israel. Their sin continually gets in the way of them experiencing God's love and plan for them. I mean, read the entire Old Testament, pick a story, it's there. Their sin continually gets in the way of them experiencing God's love and plan for them. The third truth of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is God's only provision for our sin. Through him alone, we can know God personally and experience his love and plan. The bronze serpent in this story is the only way for those who have been bitten to be healed and ultimately to be reconciled to God, right? To be able to enter the promised land. If they don't look on it, like they're gonna die, but God made a way for them to be delivered from their sin. And the bronze serpent is a picture of Jesus. In fact, Jesus brings this exact story up in the evening discourse he has with Nicodemus in John chapter three. Jesus tells Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And then he says, what's probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This picture, this story is the one Jesus references when he says that verse. Jesus is the only way for us to know God and experience his love and plan. But there's a fourth reality to the gospel, right? This is all good truth, it's encouraging. But the fourth reality is that we must all individually respond and receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord, because it's only then we can know God personally and experience his love and plan. So if you put yourself in the story in Numbers as an, as an Israelite who's been bitten by a snake, it's not enough to know that there's a bronze serpent somewhere. It's not enough to know that if you look on the serpent, you could be healed. You have to actually do it. And so it is with us and Jesus. It's not enough to know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. People, you can read it on a bus anywhere in Belfast. Like People know this. It's not enough to know um, that God loves us, that God wants to forgive you. Like We have to respond to that. And so I think the first takeaway for us that I want us to kind of think about a little bit this morning is that God's desire for us is to be reconciled to him. Reconciliation is an interesting word. The Bible uses it a lot. It's in 2 Corinthians. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But um, I, for the longest time for me, the idea of reconciliation is kind of like a word I put in that junk drawer with like forgiveness and salvation. You just kind of like, they all mean the same thing whatever, you just kind of like, it's just like, yeah, it, it fixed the sin problem kind of thing, right? And, and it wasn't until recently that I really began kind of thinking about, well, like, what, what is reconciliation like, actually? Because reconciliation, while it can kind of be synonymous with forgiveness and salvation, these things that we understand and we read in Scripture, it's, it's also... I don't know, it just carries like a certain like power to it, like a, like a significance to it when you think about it. Think about your own life and just any kind of like relational breakdown that's happened. It could be, I don't know, some conflict you've had in your marriage or a friendship that's kind of fallen apart or whatever it is. And maybe that re- relationship has been reconciled, right? You guys have made things right again. Maybe it never did. Um, like, what did it take for reconciliation to happen? You see, reconciliation is, is pretty complicated and, and difficult and tricky because usually it's a situation where both parties are at fault and at the same time, both parties are victims. So we have this thing that we wrestle with where, like, I've been hurt, but I have also hurt, and how do I get over that? But also, like, you know, like, it just becomes really muddy and confusing. And as a process, recon- Reconciliation requires a tremendous amount of humility. It requires a tremendous amount of forgiveness. It requires confession, understanding, listening, repentance, trust, atonement, making things right again. Like all of these things are ingredients for like true reconciliation to happen. And I think we live, I mean we live in Northern Ireland, obviously. I think we benefit from living in this city because I think we're more, we understand reconciliation a little more keenly. With the idea of like the troubles and just like community conflicts. I mean, you just, you can read the news any week and see how far we've come and how far we've yet to go for reconciliation to happen. And so when we consider the reconciliation that is necessary, like we understand the gravity and the, and the and complexity, like just like how big of a deal it is. 
I know when I first moved here, we did a, a black cap tour. I don't know if you've ever been on one of these things. I don't know if you agree with the commercialization of the troubles or whatever, I don't know, but like, the first time I went on it, it's fine. It's, it's a great experience to kind of understand and get a, get a first taste of like, you know, the conflict and, and why it all happened and how people feel presently and all this kind of stuff. But one of the things you do on a black cap tour, if you haven't done it, is you go to the Peace Wall, which is like in between the, you know, Falls World and Schenkel Road. And it's, you know, there's murals and they're all, you know, brilliantly colored or whatever else. And they'll take you there and people have like signed the wall. And you can go read what these things say, but it's just a bunch of stupid tourists who like, give peace a chance, you know, and like love, not hate. And like all these kind of just like, just platitudes. And you read it. And even when I first read it, I was like, they don't, you don't get it though. Like it's not that easy to just get over it and fix the problem. Later on um, in my time here, we actually did another uh, tour. It was a walking tour. And this one, we, we walked all the way up the Falls Road and all the way back down the Shankle. And, and our tour guide up the fall, Falls Road was an ex-IRA member had been to prison, kind of told us, just, he basically just shared his entire experience of his life and why he and his community feel the way they do about things. And talked about why reconciliation is necessary, whatever else, but it, it wasn't like, we're not trying to be sanitized and unbiased. He's like, this is me and my community feel this way for these reasons. And then we walked back down the Shankle Road and had... Uh, I don't know if this guy, he didn't mention if he was a paramilitary member or not or whatever, but he basically shared the same story of like, this is why my community, my family, and me feel this way about these things. Here's what we think is necessary for reconciliation to happen. And that picture was way more colorful and helped me understand just what reconciliation means. And so when I say what it means to be reconciled to God, that the first idea is like, we must be reconciled to God. I want us to kind of understand the gravity here, but there's a difference. When we talk about general reconciliation in our relationships, again, it's like, you've wronged me, I've wronged you, and we're trying to get over it. We're trying to figure a way forward. It's not that way between us and the Lord. We and we alone have sinned against God. We are solely and completely responsible for the broken relationship we have with God. But the interesting thing about the gospel, the reason why I think the gospel is important, the reason why I kind of went through this whole reconciliation bit before is because you would think that us being the wrongdoers would be the ones who would come to God and be like, look, we've sinned against you. We've, you know, done these things and how can we make it right and please forgive us. We often don't do that. When we look at the gospel and what the Bible says about reconciliation, we see that we're the wrongdoers, and yet God has done everything necessary for us to be reconciled to God, to him. Jesus humbles himself. Jesus comes down to earth. Jesus takes on human form. Jesus lives as we should. Jesus dies the death that we all deserve to die, the atonement necessary to make things right. God does all of that, and then says, everything's been done for us to be reconciled and then gives us the opportunity to respond to that. Just like in the story of Numbers, it's as simple as looking to Jesus and believing and putting our faith and trust in him. And so what does it mean to be reconciled for you this morning, for us? Well, if you've never been reconciled to God, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. Consider that. Do it. It's 
it's an incredibly like weighty decision and it's also blessedly simple to become a follower of Jesus. And so my encouragement for you is to do that today. If you are already reconciled to God, if that's a decision you've made in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus for however long you've been, what does it mean for us to kind of be reconciled or to live as reconciled people? Well, I think it means to live in light of the gospel in our own lives. It means remembering and glorifying and living in light of the gospel. It means, it means remembering our sin, appreciating the amazing grace we have in Jesus, understanding the transforming work that's taken, that, that's had in our lives, and being able to like live, live that out, to express God's love for us back to him in worship and praise, to have a desire to obey him. If you understand Jesus as your savior, you would want to make him your Lord. These are the ideas of what it means to be reconciled to God. And so that's the first idea for us this morning. Please be reconciled to God. Live as reconciled people. But I think there's another thing here in Numbers that I want us to look at, so I want us to go back here, and I kind of want to relook at the story with a bit of a, I don't know, I'll call it like a, like a holy imagination, if you will. Um, if you can imagine yourself, again, as an Israelite, at the time, the nation of Israel is pretty large. Um, I was trying to find like a number and in kind of preparing for this, and I, it, I mean, I was reading numbers anywhere between like 36,000 to two million people, which obviously is a pretty big discrepancy. But whatever it is, it's large, right? even if you are just one of 36,000 people. And so if you've been bitten by a snake, how do you get to the serpent? Like imagine you're bitten and you're swelling and feverish and fatigued, vomiting, you're dying. You're dying of a snake bite. How do you get to a bronze serpent? And you may, may be lucky enough to just, it, it's right there. And it's right next to you. You look, you believe, you're healed but maybe not. Maybe you're a great distance away and physically incapable of getting to where you need to go. I think implied within numbers is a picture of evangelism. If people are gonna be healed, people need to be brought to the serpent or that serpent needs to be brought to them. And I think oftentimes we read the gospel in a personal kind of God and me way, one-on-one, -on -one. it's a very individualistic thing we do. Um, we can become preoccupied with it, but the Bible hardly talks about God's redemptive plan being person-specific, being only for you. God didn't make a way for a select few Israelites to be saved. He made a way for all of them. But implied in that is a burden on those who have been healed or reconciled to bring others to the snake. Within this picture is a story of evangelism, of people who have been healed bringing other people to the snake, or in our terms, people who have come to know Jesus to bring other people to Jesus. And I don't know how you feel about evangelism. Um, it's a bit of a buzzword. I know for me, um, for the longest time, I, I grew up, I, I mean, I grew up going to church and everything, but I just did not like the idea of sharing my faith. I'm a, I'm a, I am a naturally risk averse person and evangelism is inherently a risky venture 
And I just, I've always been uncomfortable with it. I mean, I'm going to be preaching on it this morning, and I still am uncomfortable with it. Um, but I remember reading the Bible, and for the longest time, I was like, look, it's not my gifting, it's not my thing. Like, that's for people, there are people that are gifted in that. Good luck, God bless, you go do, you go do your thing, right? Um, but I, I read 2 Corinthians, which we're going to get into now. And, there were, and, and it's one of the, you ever read a passage of scripture that, I don't know, it's like, it was a quiet time you had one morning, and you're like, I'm never going to forget this. I'm just, just going to stay with me forever. It's just like that kind of convicting or encouraging or whatever, and you're just like, it just, God sears it on your heart and never lets you forget it. And that's what 2 Corinthians is for me. And so I want us to turn there real quick, because I think Paul paints a picture of what it means to be reconciled um, and to be people who are reconcilers. Starting in verse 14, he says this, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded that one died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might, not, might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The first thing that I wanna take from this is when Paul says that the love of Christ controls us. Paul's talking about a picture in his own life of being so compelled by his own reconciling to God and his experience of God's love for him that it compels him to, to want to do this for other people, to want to introduce other people to Jesus. And it compels him to, to live not for himself, but um, for him who for their sake died and was raised. The danger and temptation we all face when we focus on our personal relationship with God is that we continue to live for ourselves or to live our faith in a self-centered way. Instead, Paul says that we ought to live for Christ and for others. See what he says in verse 16. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Here's the second thing from this that I want us to kind of highlight. Paul talks about not viewing anyone according to the flesh. What does it mean to view someone according to the flesh? I think it means regarding someone by worldly standards and values. It's living in a way where the physical life is all that matters. In fact, Paul talks about how he once regarded Christ this way, as a false messiah. Quite possibly, Paul viewed Jesus' crucifixion as God's just punishment to this blaspheming person until, obviously, he met Jesus himself and then viewed Christ no longer according to the flesh. Instead, we ought to view others according to the Spirit. Paul highlights this when he talks about us being new creations. The reality of us in our world in which we live, all the people around you, the people in this room, the people in your neighborhood, coworkers, family, friends, is that people are either new creations in Christ or dead in their trespasses and sins. Dying from a snake bite in the wilderness because of their sinfulness. So when you look at other people, what do you see? Do you see their, their money? Do you see their car? their circumstances, their family, their relationships, their happiness, their depression, their disabilities, their setbacks. 
as I was kind of like meditating on this idea, I was thinking like, okay, by worldly standards, like who's just the best of the best? And I was thinking of the likes of people like Jeffrey Bezos and Elon Musk and like these people that have just like achieved everything. And to view them by worldly standards, we can see their wealth, their ingenuity, their inventiveness. And according to the flesh, we may idolize them for these things. According to the flesh, we may victimize them for these things or vilify them, not victimize. We may look at them and condemn them and judge them for the things they've achieved and what they do with the money they have and whatever else. But according to the spirit, like, they're no closer to God than anyone else. According to the spirit, they're dead men walking. According to the spirit, whatever dreams they may have of going to space won't get them any closer to heaven than we who are children of God, right? Like, it's, it shifts everything about how we view people. And so Paul says that the love of Christ compels him and controls him to want to share his faith with people. He, he talks about the realization he had that he once regarded people according to the flesh and instead now views people in this, like, spiritual reality and then he goes on to say in verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. The last thing, and this was the biggest thing that I feel like kind of God showed me, is, is the word and. Let's read it again. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, be reconciled to God, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. What Paul's saying here is that two things happened when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. You were reconciled to God. You were given the ministry of reconciliation. I think we have a tendency to really enjoy the, recon- the being reconciled bit, I think there's something for this in, in this morning to, to want to, to know that more, to appreciate that more, to enjoy that more. But more likely than not, the idea of being a reconciler is probably the area that most of us need the most growth in. Paul says that we therefore are ambassadors for Christ, that God is making his appeal through us. I want you to consider something. Think of all the ways in which God could possibly make himself known to the world. Think of all the ways in which God could communicate the gospel to the world. Miracles, wondrous signs, angels. But he has chosen to have his people glorify his name in all the earth so that the world might come to know him. He's made us his ambassadors. He has chosen to make his appeal through us, which feels kind of daunting. 
for me. I don't know about for you. But this has been God's plan forever. God's intention for the nation of Israel was for them to glorify his name in the world. And they failed spectacularly at it. In fact, the only ways in which they, used, they did it well was whenever they were in exile. That's when you have stories of Esther and Daniel because of their life lived in faith, bringing kings of empires to come to know God and glorify his name. But beyond that, they really didn't do a very good job of, of it. And even in the early church, like, it took persecution for the church to become missional, to, to leave where they were and take the gospel to new places. And even if you look at the missional history of the church, there have been generations where the church has done an amazing job at taking the gospel to new places, being missional, sharing the, sharing the gospel all over the place. And there's been generations where that's just not happened at all. And God hasn't abandoned his plan and done something different. He's just waited for people to be obedient again. I read a book once um, called The Finishers. It's a brilliant little book written by a guy named Roger Hershey who kind of proposes the idea that our generation has the potential to be the generation that can finish the Great Commission, that can finally take the gospel to all nations and all tongues because it's like globalization and the internet and all these kind of things. Like the, it, the possibility is there. So it's really kind of a big visionary book. But one of the things he says in it is that we, the people of God, are God's plan A and there's no plan B. God's not gonna abandon his plan for, for the gospel going into all the world just because of his people's disobedience or lack of faith or courage or whatever you wanna, you know, ascribe to it. So what does it mean for us to be reconcilers? Well, let's put ourselves in the story of Numbers one last time. Perhaps you are snake bit and dying. That's like who you are right now as you sit in this room. Perhaps you have been healed and you are just hanging out with other people that had been healed. You know, happy, praising God for your healing, content to be healthy again. Perhaps you're thinking about how someone should really do something about all these people around that are dying. Perhaps you're someone who even admires those who do help bring others to the snake so that they might be healed. Perhaps now that you're healed, you're too busy doing other things to be able to help other people come to, know, you know, come to the snake and be healed. The idea of evangelism, the idea of being a reconciler is not easy. It is difficult to engage and watch other people who are dying choose not to want to be healed. I work uh, for a ministry called Agape. We do a lot of ministry with university students. It's a lot of conversations with students where you're basically just sharing the gospel with them. And it's a lot of conversations where you're like, that's cool, no thanks. And that like, to, you, you try to cope with it a little bit, but at the same time it's like, man, this is so sad. It's so sad when you look at it according to the spirit, right? But it's also incredibly rewarding. There's two things with being reconcilers that I think are important. Number one, we as believers have a responsibility. It is, I mean, it's just in the Bible as a commandment 
And I'm not, this isn't meant to be like a guilt trip that you should show up on Wednesday to the evangelism training. That's not what we're trying to do here. Um, I wrote this talk way before that event was planned. Um, that's not what this is. But, but if, there's, if there's a sense of conviction in your own heart, there should be, because it's God's command for our lives to be people who reconcile, to be taking part of the ministry of reconciliation. But it's also a joy to be a reconciler. It's a joy to tell people about what God's done in your life. It, I mean, it is good news. I like to think, that I, would, I mean, I hope to think that telling people good news is, is a joy to do. Um, I would be failing as someone giving a sermon in Northern Ireland if I didn't have a C.S. Lewis quote. Um, so here you go. Um, Belfast's patron saint. Um, C.S. Lewis said this about evangelism. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling each other how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone about how good he is or to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in a ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Or a good meme. Um, the Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are one and the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. It is amazing to consider the work that God did to reconcile us to himself. And I think it's important for us to understand our own reconciliation, our own, like how God made us right with him, to appreciate that, to let that com compel us then to be reconcilers. I'm gonna close here. Um, and as we close, we're gonna kind of move to communion, which is here in front of us. And I want, the picture of communion is the cost of reconciliation. We have the bread that represents Christ's body that was broken for us and the wine that is his blood spilled out for us. It's a really brilliant picture of how, um, of, of what it costs for us to be made right with God. And so as we take communion and we do this in remembrance of Christ this morning, um, as we come forward, I want us to do a couple things. Number one, if, if you haven't yet been reconciled to God, this, this meal is, is for those of, those of us who are children of God who have put our faith and trust in Jesus. And I would encourage you just to trust God this morning to receive Jesus himself um, instead of this. But as children of God who come and, and take part uh, in, in this supper together, in this meal, as you eat the bread and you drink the wine, I want you to remember and appreciate and meditate on um, what, it, what it means to, have, to now be reconciled to God. And also as you do that, I want us to consider what it might look like in a year's time for your neighbor or your coworker 
or your friend or your family member to be here at this table with you next year because they too have been reconciled to God. So yeah, I'm gonna pray for us. I think Thomas is gonna come up um, and lead us in worship. And we'll pray for this communion meal that we're gonna take together. Um, and then we'll do that. Father God, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the work of Christ on the cross. God, I thank you that you saw us in our, yeah, just in the state that we were in, snake bit in the wilderness, dying, helpless, because of your um, steadfast love and faithfulness to us. You did everything required to make us right with you. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you that your body was broken, that your blood was shed. God, that you did everything necessary to make us right with God. Thank you for the forgiveness and grace we get to experience through that. God, as we come to this meal right now, help us to remember that, to appreciate it once again in a new and profound way. And God, may that appreciation compel us to want to tell other people the good news of what you have done for us. In your name I pray, amen.